We're going to be in Mark chapter 14. So if you want to flip your Bibles open to Mark 14, uh, you can click open there. If you've got a device, uh, feel free to click open to Mark 14 um, as well. And I, as, as you're getting there, I want to give a, a little bit more of excitement this morning. Um, everybody fails. <laughs> Welcome to church. Um, everybody fails. We all fail. And specifically, I want to shine a light on pastors for a little bit. Pastors fail. Raise your hand if you've heard in the past, I don't know, five years or so about some pastor having a moral failure. Just raise your hand. Okay, yeah. Most of you in here, okay? Um, just be aware. I'm, I'm not like coming clean about anything and our pastoral staff loves Jesus very much and all that stuff. Um, but I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but, but, but pastors in general all are very human and all have sin issues just like the rest of us have sin issues. And I think oftentimes uh, people put pastors on this pedestal that they don't deserve, right? And, so, and, and because of that, when there is a moral failure, they turn their back on God or whatever it, it may be, that everybody is completely and totally shocked by that. They don't know what to do about that. Right? Again, to be clear, there's no moral failures on staff or anything like that. But let's think, let's think more broadly for a moment. It does seem like, legitimately, in the past few years, there has been pastor after pastor who fails to meet the role and the expectation of being a pastor. If you want to know what those are, go ahead and look in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Okay, they, they, just, they, they fail to meet those, those things. And a lot of them are very public when that moral failure goes down. A lot of them even make headlines oftentimes, right? And it's like, oh, megachurch, pastor, fit, whatever. And it seems like the bigger the church, the further the fall. Because people in some instances have believed that, that pastors who should be the most devout and loyal people to God can't fail. There's actually a podcast put out in the last few years called the Rise, the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Uh, Christianity Today, Today put, it, put it out, um, and it, it highlighted a famous pastor by the name of Mark Driscoll. Some of you may be familiar with that name, um, who was the head of Mars Hill Church, one of the fastest-growing churches in America in the early 2000s. It was based out of, out of Seattle, um, and, and he largely caused a ton of damage to his church and to his people that he was leading because of a moral failure, failure that he had. Or let's go back maybe to the, to the 70s and 80s where we got people like Jimmy Swaggart and Jim Baker. Maybe you know of those names. Maybe you uh, turned on Amazon Prime and you saw a, a documentary about Hillsong Church and a pastor by the name of Carl Lentz who had a moral failure. Or you have followed Willow Creek at one point, one of the, the largest church in all of America, and Bill Hybels moral failure. The list just goes on and on and on, and it's really depressing. And so now you get to listen to a pastor talk to you about how to deal with, with failure. But my question is this, why are any of us surprised by this? Why are any of us surprised by, by a, a moral failure by a pastor? And hear me, I'm not saying it's okay for pastors to fail morally. It's repugnant. Okay, it's reprehensible. It's absolutely terrible. But, but a healthy fear every pastor should have is that at some point, they, they need to be aware if they believe that their own press is just like incredible and assume that they are capable of leading and shepherding without Christ in their lives, like, like they should be very, very aware of that. And at first of all, I think, yes, that's true. How can pastors be so terrible that, that they assume they can do their jobs without the help and the guidance of the Holy Spirit? How can pastors do that? All right, how, can, how can pastors assume they can do God's work apart from God and his word? How could they do so? Like, how can they live in active sin and still do the things that God has called them to do? 
Now again, hear me, I'm not saying this is okay, but let me ask you a question. As, as a follower of Christ, and some of you work or did work for years and now you retire or whatever, as a follower of Christ, why is it you assume you can do your jobs without the help and guidance of the Holy Spirit? Or why, why do you assume you can do God's work apart from God and his word? Right? How can you live in active sin and still do the things that God has called you personally to do? The short answer is you can't, just like pastors can't, not while active and unrepentant sin is, is controlling your life in any way. So maybe let's take all of that with a grain of salt. Let's turn the heat down maybe, maybe just a little bit. As a Christian, do you personally believe that when push comes to shove, that you will actively follow and pursue Jesus regardless of what's going on in your life or in the world? Like do, do you believe that? And I think for most of us, the answer should be like, like I, I hope I would, I would continue to follow Jesus. Like, I hope I would continue to stand up for the things that I wanted to stand up for. But, but when you enter into a saving relationship with him, you're setting yourself up for failure. I don't know if you knew this. There's a whole theology based around failure. That, that when you say yes to Jesus, you make a profession of faith, you are signing up to fail every single day. That's kind of a, a weird way to look at the idea of having a relationship with God. But, 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 but saying yes to Jesus means saying yes to failure regularly. And if you're like me, you probably don't like the idea. I don't know if anybody likes the idea of failure. I think more of, some of us are just more comfortable with it. I don't think anybody likes the idea of failure. Because the idea of failing to me is like as repulsive as Brussels sprouts are to my children. Right, like it's terrible. I don't care what. I don't care how much butter you put on it and bacon you you add to it. It still is not going to taste good to them. Right? It's the same with, with failure. Like I don't want it. I don't ever want it to happen in my life. And so you don't like you don't like the idea. But the question becomes then, the question becomes that why is it when you become a Christian that failure should be expected on a regular basis? And more importantly, what are we supposed to do with this failure? In Mark chapter 14, we are, we're largely entering into the final hours of Jesus' life at this point. And if you haven't caught on, we are, we are moving as quickly as we can towards the resurrection, towards Easter, right? So we're going to hit the resurrection right as we, right as we get, get to Easter. And we're going to see largely all of the, the players in this game come to light very quickly. And because of that, it seems like Jesus is being more and more direct with his disciples, more and more direct with, with his followers and acting with greater urgency as the time of his crucifixion largely is drawing, drawing more and more near. So let's check out the theology of failure. We're going to be in Mark 14, starting in verse 12. And we're going to go section by section today and kind of jump a bit. Um, so follow along as we start. It starts in 12. It says, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. So, the owner of the house, so to the owner of the house he enters. The teacher asks, where is my guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. He'll show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. And while they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened. And one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. 
It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. All right, there's a lot to unpack here. This is the first section that we're going to get to, and we're going to kind of continue on. But, but, uh, but in verses 12 to 15, Jesus is essentially giving instructions to two of his disciples. We actually know from the, the Gospel of Luke, it was Peter and John that he's talking to. So if you note-takers in the margin of your Bible, it says two disciples, Peter and John, those are the two that uh, he, he told to go into the city for them. And the instructions are largely based around what is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Okay, the Jews, they celebrate and continue to celebrate all types of things. They got feasts, they got festivals, like all of the time they have these things. Their religious calendar is a little bit more full than a Christian's religious calendar, right? For us, we're like, I hit Christmas, I hit Easter, I'm good. That's my religious calendar. But man, the Jews, they have a ton of feasts and festivals, and all of them celebrate and commemorate specific occasions that God had reached out to intervene for his people, where God showed his divinity, showed his hand and said, hey, keep going. I am going to protect you in these different times of distress. So celebrating these feasts on a regular basis, the Hebrews are kind of keeping, wanting to keep at the forefront of their minds the greatness of God and acting like on behalf of their destiny, right? Like God has gone before me, so he is going to do these things for me, right? Their repeated celebration and, and remembrance of God's help and love of them, like it reminded them that he was still able to sustain the Jews on a regular basis, especially in times of hardship. So it points to the reality of, of God's presence and activity among them. Right? It's the same way that maybe you're in a small group, right? And, and in your small group, talk about prayer requests and, hey, this prayer was answered. We want to celebrate what it is that God did to remind us of God's faithfulness in the midst of that. Or even the whole reason that we do Easter every single year, right? I mean, there's never a year where we're like, you know what? We celebrated Easter last year. We're not going to do it again this year. It's like, no, it's Easter. We celebrate Easter. Why? Because we celebrate Jesus rising from the dead, conquering death on our behalf. Like, we're going to celebrate that. This is the same thing that the Jews are doing on a regular basis with these different feasts and different festivals and, and that, sort of, that sort of thing. Okay, so this is, this is the manifestation of, of this, this same thing, celebrating uh, what God has done. And so the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a, the larger remembrance kind of of Passover. So many of us have heard of, of Passover. Um, if you're reading your Bible in a year, you're probably through the book of Exodus by now. And so the Passover happens in Exodus, right? And the Jews, are, they're largely under, under the reign of Pharaoh and all these different things. And so because of that, God delivers the Jews from underneath the hand of Pharaoh. And it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread because during the Passover feast, they weren't allowed to use yeast. They needed to be ready to move at a moment's notice. And so because of that, when God told them, hey, it's time to go, you needed to go. But Passover more specifically is largely what, what went down when the 10th plague hits in the book of Exodus. If you Recall back the 10th plague, let my people go, all that stuff, right? The 10th plague is when God is going to send the angel of death door to door, and anybody who does not have lamb's blood painted on their door, the eldest son from every single one of those families was going to be killed. And so it's called Passover, right? Because the angel of death was passing over the houses that painted the lamb's blood on their doors. And so this is what they're celebrating, and as they're celebrating this, this festival, this feast specifically, has to be celebrated within the walls of Jerusalem. Okay? And so Jesus and his disciples are probably hanging out in Bethany, hanging out with Mary and Martha and, and Lazarus. And, and Jesus is like, hey, you two, go prepare a meal for us. Go prepare a space for us up 
in Jerusalem. So Peter and John, they head in and they find everything like Jesus told them it would be. There's a little bit of debate as to whether or not this is Jesus like, hey, I know this is going to happen because I'm divine and I understand divinity like this is going to happen. Or if Jesus just set it up on his own. Either way, once they got there, everything was set up and, and prepared for them. So they go to the upper room of a guy's house that they don't know, which is strange, right? If someone came in or came over to your house, knocked on your door, I was like, hey, me and 12 of my buddies want to have a party in your upper room. Would you oblige? You'd be like, what? Absolutely not. Not a thing. Okay. This, like you, you were required to, you were, excuse me, you were required to, if you lived within the walls of Jerusalem, you were Jewish and you had space in order for people to celebrate Passover, you were required to say yes. And so this guy was obligated to say yes to Jesus and all of his, his buddies since he did have space available. So they get up there, they get comfy, right? And then Jesus, at least in the gospel of Mark, he goes straight into it. He goes straight into this idea that somebody is going to betray him. Someone is going to fail. But if we look at the Gospel of John, there's actually something that happens just before this. In the Gospel of John, we actually see Jesus who takes a moment to wash every single one of his disciples' feet. Now, the reason I bring this up is because Judas, who we all understand what Judas did, he betrays Jesus the same, like, like, Judas, no one names their kid Judas, right? I mean, it's like, hey, hey, little Judas is scary. Like, no one's doing that, okay? So Judas is like, he is the one who is going to betray Jesus. But right before this, Jesus takes time and opportunity to wash every single disciple's feet, including Judas's. Okay, can you imagine that difficulty, maybe a little bit of that angst? Now, Judas knew what he was about to do. Judas knew that he was going to betray Jesus. And beyond that, Jesus knew what Judas was about to do. So can you imagine that awkward interaction of like Jesus literally sitting there on his knees washing Judas's feet? I oftentimes wonder, like, did you look up? Did, like, did they make eye contact? And Judas just like looked away like a child who was guilty of doing something that they weren't supposed to do. Right? And so Jesus knows what is going to happen. He is very, very aware of what's going to happen. And Jesus, he points this out to all of the disciples that, hey, somebody is going to betray me. And at this point, every single disciple is sad, which strikes me as odd that every single one of them as, as sad because only one of them had plans to betray Jesus. But all of them are nervous that it's going to be them, right? Because as they go on, each and every one of them asks, like, is it I, is it I? And Jesus is like, no, it's not you. In the Middle East, actually, the worst kind of treachery is to share a meal with somebody and then betray that same person right afterwards. So this is going to be a massive deal, not just a friend betraying their friend and leader, but also completely reprehensible societally. So why are all of them sad? And I never caught this in my study, but it seems like, until my study, it seems like none of the disciples actually trusted themselves to not be the betrayer, which I think is really interesting they, like, they didn't trust themselves to not be that guy. And so they go into scramble mode of getting reassurance from Jesus that it wasn't going to be them. Right? In the book of Matthew, Judas even asked the question. Now, Judas is like, is it I, Lord? You know, clearly he knows the answer. Okay, but every other disciple had asked. So if every other disciple was asking, of course Judas needs to ask, but every other disciple was asking like this question prompted by, by fear and maybe like a lack of confidence in their own spiritual and maybe their own moral strength. But from Judas, we have like this hypocritical and like attempt to, to cover up his tracks at this point. 
And Jesus has already given a few clues as to who the person is going to be. He's one of the 12, right? He's, he's sitting at the table with them at the moment. And now Jesus finally gives them a third clue that the betrayer is going to be the one who dips the bread in the bowl with him. Okay, other, other gospels talk about the person Jesus hands dipped bread to. And the gospel of John talks about that specifically. Regardless of how the transaction went down, after this point, it is clear that Jesus is talking about Judas. And here's the hard part, right? Like, I don't think Judas signed up to follow Jesus just so he could betray him three years later. Like, I don't think that's the case. I think when Judas began following Jesus, when Jesus called him, I legitimately think Judas was like, absolutely. I want to follow this guy. I want to follow this rabbi. I want to know more about him. But behind Judas's greed is largely a divine purpose that's being carried out. What happens to Jesus doesn't just randomly happen. In all of this, especially in Jesus' final days on earth, Scripture is being fulfilled in a very real way. He even says what is happening has been, has been written. He's probably referring to Isaiah 53 where it talks about the death and the Savior of the world. But Jesus is talking about like everything that is about to play out, everything that is about to go down. There is prophecy written about it. So in this first portion, this is what I want you to hear. Judas a guy who spent the last three years with Jesus, who saw Jesus' miracles, who saw Jesus' signs and wonders, who, who listened to his teaching, was saved from drowning during a storm, saw Jesus exercise demons, saw Jesus raised from the dead. This guy, who I'm assuming had no ill intent when he began following him, fails. Proximity to Jesus has nothing to do with how related you are to him. And I think Judas misses that fact. Because he doesn't just fail a little bit, right? Judas, he fails in the worst way and now is known forever as the disciple who turned his back on Jesus. And Jesus knows it. And Jesus knew it when he was washing his feet. Later on in the Garden of Gethsemane, it happens right after this story. Pastor Jeff will be talking about it last week. You know, Jesus actually takes an opportunity to pray for all of his, all 12 of his disciples. So not only does Jesus know what, what, what is about to happen, and then it happens, and Jesus still continues to pray for him regardless of what happens. But man, Judas, he failed. And Jesus knew. And he pressed forward regardless. And this is where we kind of get the idea that theologians would call, if you're a theologian in the room or want to be a theologian in the room or just like big, big vocabulary words, this idea of the hypostatic union comes up. Hypo, not hyper, hypostatic union of Jesus. It's a fancy way of seeing, saying that Jesus is essentially fully human as well as fully God. 100% human, 100% God. Okay? Don't try to figure out the math on it. We're theologians, not mathematicians. Okay, And so... 100% of him is God and 100% of his, him is, is, is man. And so his divinity, his God, 100% is largely coming out here. Right? Jesus didn't hear through back channels that Judas was going to betray him. It's not how it went down. Like Jesus didn't hear through a prayer request from, from Peter that Judas was going to betray him. And it's not how the whole thing went down. Okay, Jesus' divinity is showing here. He knew and he pressed forward regardless. But in this kind of portion of scripture, it's not the only disciple that fails. 
We're even going to see next week, Jesus, as at his most vulnerable, disciples continue to fail. But let's skip ahead to Mark 14, 27 to 31, and then we'll come back to that last passage. It says, you will all fall away. Man, it's exciting. Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And classic Peter. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Here we have divinity again. Okay, Jesus is 100% God peace showing up. He's saying, this is going to happen to you, Peter. Not just Peter, this is going to happen to you, all of my disciples. And I love here, it's like classic Peter, like I said, I love here that Peter thinks it's a good idea to argue with Jesus, right? I mean, three years into this trek and you would assume that this guy could catch on, but he really doesn't. He's like, no, Jesus, you're wrong. <laughs> Come on. He says, I will never disown you. It won't happen. He was emphatic with it even. Not me, Jesus. I won't, I won't be that guy. Right? When things get tough, it won't be me who turns my back. I know you're good. I know that you're righteous, God. I know that you have called me to you. I have seen it in my life. I've seen it in, in Scripture. Everyone else may fall away, but I am never going to be that guy. I will stand righteous, and I will stand stoic above all of it. Like That's Peter's thoughts here. We think to ourselves, yeah. Yeah, I could, like that's, I could be that guy. I could be the one. Like, I'm not going to forsake Jesus, we believe this all the time as we're reading through scripture, right? I used to do this when I was younger and I was in Sunday school. And we'd be like reading about some Bible character, we're like, oh yeah, I'm him. Right? Like David and Goliath would come up and be like, oh, I'm totally David. But like just the part where he kills Goliath, not the Bathsheba part, just like the Goliath David is who, is who I'm going to be. Or like thinking about like Samson, like I want to be Samson for no other reason. I want to have like sweet hair and be really buff, Right? Like, I, wanted that, that's, I want to be Samson. Or, or when I got a little older, maybe I saw myself a little bit more as, like, the disciple James, and he was a little bit brash and spoke when he wasn't supposed to speak. And, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do this. And she's like, no, you're not. And now I just feel like I'm pretty aptly named as Peter. But the hard part about all of this is that we all assume that we are never going to forsake Jesus. We all assume that's never going to be us. Because when you're going through the Bible stories and you're learning about Easter, you're never like, you know what? Yeah, I'm, I'm like Judas. That's who I, like, I relate most, I relate most to, to Jesus. We all assume that we're never going to forsake him. We think, you know, I'm dedicated to the Lord. I'm not going to fall. I'm not going to turn my back. I'm not going to betray the Savior of the world. But the reality of the situation is that, that we do it every single day of our lives. And we've just kind of grown accustomed to it. At the end of every service, we talk about choosing to follow the Lord. right? We say, choose to follow you every single day. That's how we pray the the ABCs. You know why we say every single day? Because we fail every single day. It's the reality of Scripture. 
And it's our heart's desire so often that, that, that when we get into a situation when someone frustrates us, or we get into a, a situation where we're tempted with something in some way, we get into a comparison game. We think our lives are harder than everyone else's, and it's not fair that they have this and I don't have this, and because of that, I'm going to go do something immoral in order to, to level the playing field. And we just think to ourselves, like, 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 like no, this is fine. This is fine because my, like my strongest desire right now is for comfort. My strongest desire is for X, Y. My strongest desire is for that sin that I continue to come back to. Even though our deepest desire, our heart's desire, is to be completely and totally committed to the Lord. And we all do what Peter did. And we all walk the path that Judas did. And we betray the very Savior we promise to follow every single day of our lives. And then we have like this guilt and we have this brokenness before God and we repent and we carry this weight and burden of the agreement we made with God in the first place. We've simply said like this sin, this situation that I'm in, the opportunity that I have is bigger than my relationship with the Lord. And because of that, I'm gonna do whatever it is that I wanna do even though I know I shouldn't do it. Because the opportunity is bigger. Because the opportunity feels better. So the question then becomes, what do we do with the burden of failure? Because the Bible is very clear. We fail all the time. Okay, Romans tells us emphatically that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So none of us are getting there apart from Jesus. And it also says the wages of that sin is death. So none of us is getting to eternal life without Christ. We're never going to be good enough on our own accord. So what do we do with the burden of failure? Because even the best, most loyal, loving God followers in the entire world will not make the right side of eternity on their own. And I think most of us know the right answer. Like, what do I do with that burden? I think most of us know the right answer. The right answer is to simply turn back to God. Repent and turn back to God. After we repent, we're going to give it all to him and say, Jesus, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Lord, for what it is that I have done. I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for, for my betrayal. I'm sorry for my, my, my failure. But, but thank you for not forcing me to deal with the repercussions of my own actions. Because you've dealt with them for me. So thank you for that. It's the very reason we do communion, right? We're going to get to communion in a second, so don't, don't shift to communion mode yet because there's one more passage of, of Scripture that we have, to, we have to get to. We do communion to remember what he has done for us in the same way that the Jews celebrate Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread in order to recall what it is that God had done for them. But look at Mark 14. It's 22 to 26. This is what it says. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it, take it. This is my body. Then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. He said to them, truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And when they sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So this passage right here is Jesus' institution of communion. It never happens before this time. But at the same table that Judas had just betrayed him at, the same upper room, same elements in front of them. And Jesus hadn't been killed yet, but 
But we do this to remember Jesus. We do this to remember what he did for us. We do it to remind ourselves that Jesus went to the cross so that when we do fail, it isn't on us to try and get to heaven on our own accord. It isn't our responsibility to white-knuckle things more tightly in order to be better so we can get to heaven on our own accord. It's because of the fact that we have failed that Jesus came to the earth in the first place. That's what we need to recognize. And make no mistake, all of us have failed. If you're in here and you don't think you're failed, you're wrong. And the beauty of, God, of the gospel is, is there are no, that, that, that none of us are no longer, none of us are, are defined by our failure. None of us are defined by our failure. We are simply defined by Christ's willingness to go to the cross. Him suffering and dying for, us, for our sake and then being resurrected three, three days later. So each of us can enter into the kingdom of God both now and forever. If you've come into a saving relationship with Jesus, that is true about you. Romans tells us we fall short. So failure is not an option. But here's the reality. Redemption absolutely is. Because you have a God who loves you enough to come and die for your sake. Can we just sit in that for a second? Can we just sit in that for a second? That we have a God and a king who came to die for you. And I invite the band to come back out. And as the band comes, I just want you to think like, like, like I get it. You think maybe, but, but pastor, you don't know me. You don't, you don't know what I have done. You don't know the words I have said. You don't, you, you don't know the websites that I've gone to, the substances I've abused, the critical spirit that I have. Like, you don't know what I have done. I say, I get it, though. I get it because just like you, I fail. And I, I look in the mirror and I say the same things to myself that I am not, I am not worthy of this. But then I need to remind myself that the creator of the entire universe, the creator of the entire universe, the one who forms babies in their mother's wombs, the one who knows the, the number of hairs on your head, the God who created Adam from dust and Eve from a rib, the one who made Abraham a father in his 90s, who saved Noah from the flood, who used a big fish to convince Jonah of where he was, of where he was supposed to go. The same God who sent the law, who sent the prophets, who sent the kings, who sent the rulers in order to get our attention, saw that the only way to get us as failures back to him was to send his son to take on our failures so we could be with him forever. I need you to know, church, that you are not the sum total of your failures. You're the embodiment of the king. And if that doesn't get you excited, I don't know what will. And so this morning we're going to do as, uh, as Jesus and his disciples did. And if you didn't receive communion elements as you came in, just raise your hand. We got some members of our diaconate who will come in. They'll take care of you. Raise it nice and high if you need, need some elements. But this morning we're going to do as Jesus did and his disciples did. We're going to receive communion. And then together, after we receive 
communion in a unified, loud, joyful, joyful voices. We're going to thank the God of all things for sending his son so we could indeed be with him forever. But here's the deal. At FBH, we, we believe in what is called an open table. And an open table, that just means you don't need to be a member of FBH to receive communion with us, but we do ask that you have placed your faith in Christ before doing so. So today we're going to pray and we're going to thank God that we're, we're no longer defined by our failure and we're going to ask that you would continue to make us, we continue to ask God to make us more and more holy. And if you haven't yet done that in your entire life, if you have never yet said yes to God, man, this morning's a great opportunity to make that profession of faith for the first time. And not just because we want you to take communion with us. Of course, we want to celebrate communion with you after you've received Christ in your life. But it's the single best decision you can make in your life. And not because you get to wake up and your identity is that of being a failure, but because you get to wake up and recognize that because of the fact that you've fallen short, you have a savior who came to walk this earth, to die on your behalf and redeem you forever. So now you get to embody Christ to your community. You get to embody Christ to your family. You get to walk with him, not because you're any better than anybody else, but simply because you have a king whose name that you get to call Savior. And so if you've never made that decision, I invite you to do so this morning. I'll give you an opportunity to do it in just a second. But there's probably two other groups in here. There's another group of you in here who maybe, maybe you said yes to Jesus and you just feel like you have failed over and over and over again. Maybe it's been five, 10 years, five, 10 months since you said yes to Jesus, the first part. And you just feel like regardless of what you do, that you're just betraying Jesus on a regular basis. You're turning your back on him on a regular basis. And you're like, I don't know what to do anymore. And I'm carrying this burden. Repent. Repent and believe that Jesus came to earth for your sins. And there's a third group in, of you in here. You're like, you know, I'm killing it right now. I'm waking up every day. And yeah, I'm falling short every single day. But my relationship with God is stronger than it's ever been. Awesome. Celebrate that. But to all of you in here this morning who need to get right with Jesus, let's take an opportunity. Let's respond. We're going to receive communion together. And then we're going to sing real loud and thank Jesus for what he's done. Why don't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, thank you for your son. And God, we are sorry for our betrayal. We're sorry that we, we fall short on a regular basis, but God, you know, you, you know the sins that we are going to commit before we've even committed them. You know the sins that we were going to commit before the earth was formed. And so, God, this is our opportunity to repent and say sorry for that. God, thank you for your son, though. That you don't even hold us accountable for that sin. That you sent your son to die on a cross for us to bear the weight and the guilt and the burden of our sins so we didn't have to. And so with heads still bowed, 
this morning, if you're in here and you haven't said yes to that for the first time or you need to say yes again and repent of the sin in your life, if that's you, you can just in the quietness of your heart, pray along with me. Just simply say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I know that I fall short and that I can't get to heaven apart from you. But B, I believe you sent your son to take on my sin. I believe you hung on a cross for me. And because of that, see, I choose to follow you every single day. Make me more holy. Make me more like you. So as I continue to fail, can do my best to continue to point my community back to you. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.